Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Welcome back to Partial View Podcast. We are back from our summer hiatus, and we got lots of cool stuff in store for you coming down the pike. First up, we are going to be talking a little bit about kind of a heavy topic, but something that I think is near and dear to all of our hearts, which is, is the American theater in crisis? And what do we mean by that? Right. There's uh, certainly been a lot of conversation, to say the least, a lot of discourse, trademark, uh, capital D discourse, popping off about this in the last few weeks as we're recording this um, in mid-August. As a lot of theaters, regional theaters uh, particularly, are kicking off their first season without COVID um, help in like a couple years and since the pandemic started, which is definitely contributing to the conversation and something we're going to get into. So we're really excited about our guest this week. Danielle, do you want to go ahead and introduce her? Absolutely. So we have shouted out this person and her newsletter multiple times in past episodes. Big fan. We are so excited to welcome Lauren Halverson to the podcast, creator of Nothing for the Group. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So excited. So quick bio for Lauren is she is a dramaturg and writer based in Washington, D.C., She is dramaturg's over 40 new contemporary and classic plays and held artistic and literary positions at the Alley Theater, City Theater Company, Wordbridge Playwrights Laboratory, The O'Neill, the Wilma Theater and Studio Theater, where she was the associate literary director for nine years. And here it is. Lauren writes nothing for the group, a weekly newsletter about the American theater. And she is currently working on projects for Theater Washington, Woolly Mammoth, Baltimore Center Stage, Repertory Theater of St. Louis, and Long Wharf Theater. Yes, she is out here doing the work. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we're really excited to have you, Lauren. We know that this is like a really kind of heavy, fraught topic. There's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of opinions floating around. But we thought that you would be a really great voice to have in this kind of off-the-cuff conversation, kind of more casual conversation that we want to have about essentially if the American theater has to pivot, how? How how do we think it should pivot? And there's so many answers to this question, which has been just dissected over and over in lots of think pieces, especially over the last few weeks, but really over the last few months as well. And honestly, a little bit the last few years, because as a lot of the articles that have come out recently have pointed out, a lot of this audience decline that we're seeing and other financial issues that we're seeing were really already already starting a few years before the pandemic Mm -hmm. like this is not Mm -hmm. something that it's brand new yeah 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 I mean I I definitely agree with you as somebody who is working full-time in regional theater that a lot of the issues that our people are talking about right now particularly about audience decline about rising costs do feel like we're obviously existing pre-pandemic I think that one of I think that there are definitely like several issues that feel like they were exacerbated by a lot of people losing their jobs particularly the like ongoing kind of 
labor movement that's happening, like not just in the theater industry, but I think in multiple industry, in multiple industries right now, you're seeing just like a wave of unionization across the country. And I think that the conversation around like wage parity and salary transparency is part of that, but it's something that has always sort of been lurking in the shadows. But I think that pre-pandemic, there was still very much a culture of like paying your dues and feeling that, you know, just be grateful that you have a job. And I think that the now the sort of the power is in the hands of a lot of workers um, because a lot of theaters are having, are realizing that like people realize during the pandemic, and I'm certainly one of them, that like you can not work in theater, you can do literally anything else and make a lot more money. <laughs> um, yeah. Especially because theater workers have, and I tell people this a lot when they're contemplating, when they're contemplating career pivots is that people who work in theater have a really versatile, valuable mix of skills um, and experience. We just don't necessarily know how to market that to other industries. But once people figure that out, there's this, I mean, I went through a similar realization where I was just like, oh, why would I do this to myself? Why would I work 70 hour weeks for $50,000 a year when I can work a lot less for a lot more money and Mm -hmm. still have time to like pursue freelance projects and work with artists that I really value instead of just having to do everything all the time. So, you know, I mean, I think that there's like a myriad of things happening right now. Um, I feel like during this conversation, what I'm going to be doing is mainly like quoting people that are smarter than me, but in terms, in the sort of like wave of think pieces that's been happening, like something that really resonated with me. And I feel a little bit biased because I did co-publish this essay um, with Rescripted, but um, I published an essay from Annalisa Diaz, who's the um, director of artistic innovation and partnerships at Baltimore Center Stage, but is also a playwright and like a transdisciplinary artist. And I think that one of the, one of the, the line in that essay that really resonated for me is talking about building a solidarity economy of ideas, because I think that one of the things that all of these think pieces are doing is that they're not treating, like the American theater is not a monolith and there's not going to be a one size fits all solution to solve this crisis because the needs of every organization are different. The needs of every artist are different and also the needs of every community and the resources that are available to people in every community are different. So the idea that there's just going to be like one idea that solves everybody's problems, like, I mean, is a pipe dream. Um, So I love this idea of like building a bunch of ideas and maybe some work for people and maybe some don't, but like, Why don't we create a space where where we can generate that and have these ideas and people can pick and choose what works for them? Yeah. So that's sort of like where I, where I stand on it. I've been a little frustrated and a little exhausted by the sort of absolutism of how a lot of people are responding to certain articles, et cetera, that it's like, well, because this doesn't line up particularly with my personal experience of working in theater, that it's not a valid idea. You know, as usual, things on the internet are always yeah I mean always nuance exactly the the internet is not a place for nuance in general but I just want people to like I wish that people could just think like a little bit more expansively Mm -hmm. about you know perhaps this does not apply to me but like maybe this would be useful for like an organization that has like a different set of priorities a different financial situation or artists who you know like I especially think like not everybody works in the same way. We all know this. And I think especially mm-hmm. as dramaturgs, we also know that like part of 
collaborating with people is sort of like figuring out, like walking into, like every process is different because the alchemy of the people in the room is always different. So part of it is just like walking in and figuring out how do I best work with people? How do I collaborate? How do I, how can I help like facilitate an environment in which you can do your best work? Mm -hmm. And I want those principles of collaboration to also be applied to this scenario Mm -hmm. is that like, you know, it's like not everybody is going to be experiencing this crisis and coming in the same way. How So how can we accommodate all of those very different and very valid viewpoints as best as we can? Yeah. And I'm somebody who also like gets overwhelmed by these sort of like big macro level issues, but I am somebody who believes that like the accumulation of small actions can really have meaning. And so I have found, I have found that like coming up with like small, like maybe not small, but it's just sort of like achievable, actionable items and and reading from people who are doing and reading work from people who are like organizing their thoughts in that way. I have also found like really, really helpful as along with some of the more like macro level philosophical thinking about where the industry is and where do we go from here. Totally. And I think that's really like the thesis of this podcast Mm -hmm. too, is we're like, we're not trying or pretending on any level that we're coming up with an answer to these massive, massive questions. We we end every episode with me asking Danielle if we've solved the issue at hand. (laughs) Like this, this is literally just like our joke on the podcast is that we're trying to solve it. We're like, great, we've solved exploitation. Yeah. <laughs> Done. It's really just, it is about like either putting aside or leaning into the overwhelm of the systemic mm-hmm. problems to actually still have the conversation. Yeah. And ask the questions. So that, I think that's a really amazing initial like starting point and overview. Before we like fully dive in, do we want to do our like what we are each enjoying? Yes. Yes, 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 because I'm I'm ready. Go, I think go you for should it. go first. Okay, <laughs> great. As we've previously stated, um, in solidarity with the ongoing SAG and WGA strikes, Danielle and I have decided to not shout out TV, film kind of projects. That's our just our choice. So I can't talk about what I'm watching on Netflix, but what I can talk about is the new Olivia Rodrigo song, which I'm obsessed <laughs> with. I'm I love it. I love it so much. It's called Bad Idea Right? Question mark. It was her second her second single off her new album. Because yeah, I heard about Vampire. I guess that was the first. Vampire, I, I think I'm in the minority here, but I'm in good company in that I know I'm not the only person who thinks this, but Vampire was a little underwhelming. Bad Idea Right is the perfect song to scream sing with your friends at a concert, and I can't wait to do so. I love it. It's so funny. It's so fun. It's so real. It's just such a bop. And I I keep listening to it on repeat. I can't get enough of it. (laughs) So that's my what I'm enjoying right now. Olivia Rodrigo's new song, Bad Idea Right. I love that. I have two. One is sort of like a little dated at this point just because it's not really like a brand new album anymore. But Kelly Clarkson's newest album is also like no skips, no misses. Mm -hmm. It's so good. And then the other thing I want to shout out is a TV show, but it's reality TV. So it does not apply to (laughs) the SAG strike. But I have been obsessed with every single marathon of Below Deck I can find. I shout out to my friend Zach Sherman because for whatever reason, like many months ago and this show's been on for a few years like this Mm -hmm. is not a brand new show 
But for whatever reason, I believed that it was something more like Deadliest Catch, where it was like like a work boat and it was just like burly dudes like catching crabs. And so I was like just not interested. It it hadn't even like registered with me that it was actually on Bravo because I don't really watch any other Bravo shows. And I said this to my friend Zach when he mentioned watching it and he was like, you could not be more wrong. Um, <laughs> and convinced me to watch it. No, I can't stop. So... That's my it's Kelly Clarkson and Below Deck. We're we're going really highbrow lowbrow today with mm-hmm. the American theater conversation and then Bravo, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that's the only way. <laughs> I think that's the only way. And I feel like mine are going to indicate a lot about my taste level. But you know, I've always said that it's like you know you can read Chekhov and you can also enjoy Are You the One. Absolutely. You know, for a person life is a rich tapestry. We contain multitudes. Yes. But um, for me, I mean, the two things I'll shout out, I'll also shout out a reality show is that I spent two months binging uh, the entirety of Vanderpump Rules, which was marvelous. I think it's one of the most, I think it's one of the most uh, fascinating cultural products of our time. Um, And as somebody who had a very messy friend group in her 20s, I also just found it I loved the nostalgia of it. And also, like, music-wise, I'm, like, a real, like, sad pop girl. Oh, yes. Same. I love a good... Yes. Like, I also, like, I, you know, love Lana Del Rey, and I'll listen to Phoebe Bridgers and everything, but I've really been into, but occasionally, like, a little bit more of, like, an upbeat with, like, some dark ballads, and I've been really into Chapel Roan. I think that her songs are a absolute delight. <laughs> Um, and it's like, I, you know, I feel like I never want to go see live music anymore, but I, I want to go and I want to go dance to her songs. Like that is like, they feel like a communal, like experiencing her music feels like a very communal experience. Mm. So yeah, it brings me a lot of joy. That's awesome. <laughs> that sounds really fun. They were, she was shouted out on Las Culturistas yeah. recently. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where I first heard of her. I've never heard of her. Now I need to go check her out. I mean, I root for everybody with curly hair, but especially, especially for her. Like a lot of people that I, I think the first time I heard about her was via like Kimberly Bellflower's Instagram story. Um, And, you know, Kimberly and I also share a lot of musical tastes. So I was just like, oh, I feel like if Kimberly is into like, you know, the queer pop, this queer pop girl, then I probably should be too. Amazing. (laughs) So I started listening to her and I was like, oh yeah, definitely. This is extremely much. That tracks. All right, before we dive in to the meat of it, I think we should just like do a brief overview. We've talked about the discourse, but we haven't talked about what we're actually seeing in the industry mm-hmm. regarding like why these issues are coming up in in publications and in the discourse. Now, first, do we want to just give a really like just bang through like I just pulled all I did was search. I searched the phrase American theater in crisis on Google. Good Lord. <laughs> and immediately pulled up the following articles and then some Mm -hmm. but these were the Mm -hmm. main ones starting in march 2023 american theater published if you rebuild it will they return about you know the return of theater post covid Mm -hmm. quote unquote post covid then fast forwarding theater mania wrote about it on june 30th washington post wrote about it on july 6th the new york times on july 19th and 25th american theater and hollywood reporter on July 24th, 
Variety on August 8th, which with a little bit more of an optimistic take, like we were reposting the Stagecraft podcast, yeah. which is on um, Broadway Podcast Network, with three theater leaders talking about why theater is not doomed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Washington Post again on August 9th. So it has just been a whirlwind since the end of June, sort of like yes. nonstop. Yeah. And what we've been seeing is we've actually been seeing a lot of smaller to mid-sized theaters either postponing their seasons, just like closing down entirely, mm-hmm. cutting programming, laying off staff. Launching aggressive fundraising yes. campaigns to save them. I think something that I've also noticed just in tracking season announcements too is that even the theaters that are producing, you know, like a slate of plays, it's either significantly reduced or you're seeing a lot of enhanced productions to cut costs. You're seeing a lot of mm-hmm. local co-productions between mm-hmm. both theaters, which I think is an interesting distinction because pre-pandemic, you would often see a lot of regional theaters in different areas of the country doing co-productions. Right. You're seeing local theaters really pooling mm-hmm. their resources because it's not only a financial problem, it's also like a house capacity problem. So it's like not only can we like merge our budgets, yes. but we can also merge our subscribers <laughs> and like our mm-hmm. houses as well. Exactly. Which I think is actually one of the points that I want to discuss later on. And also there's a lot of just like smaller scale solo performances. There's a lot of theaters who are doing things that are like deliberately small in terms of like, not just like the production set, but like cash size, you know, in terms of just like the physical materials budget. Like even when I'm looking at stuff, I was just like, oh, that's really interesting that you're choosing to do like a bunch of shows that have less than three people that are all very interesting. You know, I think I tweeted or X'd or whatever you call it, like posted (laughs) on the internet. Just that like, for me, it's so like this budget crisis has been so, so clear for so long Mm -hmm. um, in looking at the rollout of season announcements. But it's also so clear that even though people are dealing with so many overlapping like apocalyptic crises they're still trying to produce work that has real artistry and eclecticism and feels like it resonates with their community i'm i am like still seeing a real effort i don't feel like theaters are still like they're still trying to do new work like yes they're you know everybody's doing like dial m for murder but they're also you know but they're trying to balance that i agree there's like the real eclectic puzzle making of season planning feels very very prominent to me Mm -hmm. and i can really really see the effort even though it's happening under a lot of duress yeah one of the things that i've been seeing like one of the sort of theories being bandied about around the programming Mm -hmm. is that the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 and the, uh, I think the word racial reckoning is too strong to Mm -hmm. actually describe what happened culturally because I... Reckoning implies a more like permanent... An actual change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, That has not materialized. Um, But is that in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement theater Mm -hmm. and then as theaters started to reopen, there was this rush and like almost frantic pivot to producing more diverse programming Mm -hmm. in a way that some articles I've read and like some commentary I've seen in general have said like oh sort of like parroted right-wing talking points and said like oh this is like 
freaking out white audiences who were not like mm-hmm. you're like older white audiences who weren't ready for this or whatever. Ugh. And I'm like, no, I think it's more like this was inauthentic and people can tell. Mm-hmm. Mm. I know exactly what piece you're talking about because I remember reading it and just being like, wow, there's a lot of racism in some of these <laughs> statements that are going completely uninterrogated by the journalist in question, um, which is why I think I'm so, I was so, so eager to actually hear directly from artists rather than reading a lot of these think pieces that were regurgitating the same sort of like crisis doom scrolling mentality by journalists who don't actually work in the work in the industry. And I and I I say this because I think that mainstream arts journalism is so important. I also think that these stories are coming like a little late, like we've Mm -hmm. all known for a long time that this is happening. And so the journalism almost like that kind of journalism does not feel like it's for me and does not feel like it's for any other working theater professional. It's like sounding the alarm, the alarm for people outside of the industry. So when I feel frustrated with it, I have to remind myself about that. But I also think that because that journalism is serving to like sound the alarm for people outside the theater industry, that it has to be very careful about the narratives that it's telling itself, particularly yes. when it comes to like these sort of like like, frankly, completely racist narratives Mm -hmm. about how diverse programming is, like, leading to the alienation of subscribers and audiences when it's presented with absolutely no data and is just told on, like, an anecdotal basis as if it's an absolute truth when it 100% is not. And there are many, many examples of this. Mm -hmm. So I just, so I think that, like, what I'm happy about now and, like, this next sort of wave of, like, op-eds, et cetera, that we're actually starting to hear from people who work directly in theater. Granted, like not everybody's agreeing with each other and not everybody's having ideas that are and like- And that's fine. That's great. But no, but nor should it. Like I, you know, it's just like, there's going to be a lot of ideas. Not every single one is going to agree with people, but I would much rather <laughs> hear from the people who are directly, whose livelihoods are directly affected by these decisions, um, mm-hmm. particularly from artists, et cetera, than I want to hear from like, you know, frankly, high level administrators or like people who work outside of this industry. Because I think that like the creative problem solving that needs to happen is going to come from artists, is going to come from artists. They're the best people. And artists. And I also want to think like the creative producers. I really, I don't want to like also like, but mm-hmm. I also think that like creating a divide between artists and administrators also isn't of use to anybody, especially because so many administrators in theater are also artists. A hundred percent. I think, but I know what you yeah. mean when you say like the higher level administrators, it's like yeah. the people who have been in these leadership roles sometimes for decades and are just mm-hmm. not in touch with what their like lower level employees are dealing with. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the only way, and I've been sort of saying this repeatedly for like many years in the newsletter and that or before is that the only way that you really fix some of these problems is that it requires like a shift in power and that requires like a disruption of the status quo and many of the people who have hoarded this power for themselves and a lot of the collective wealth and a lot of those you know salaries of these theaters these sort of inflated administrative salaries are very resistant to do that because it means Mm -hmm. that they will have to live in you know it it like compromises you know their security to make sure that you know people on your staff all have a living wage so you like lose your third vacation home or your boat like sorry 
the idea of personal sacrifice for the mission you're supposedly all there for, like that is something that, you know, it's coming to a head. Yeah, well, yeah. it's also all interconnected because yeah. if you profess that you want to have a diverse and inclusive workforce, that starts with eliminating barriers to access. And for this current generation, student loans are a massive barrier to act are, are a massive barrier to access. Like people can't afford to take jobs that pay thirty five thousand dollars a year when they have a massive student loan payment, or mm -hmm. if they don't have like, for I mean, especially for me because I graduated into the recession. Is I and I also think there was when I first came out of college, which two decades ago, which kind of makes me want to die saying that. But, um, you know, there was also like the understanding that like uh, you would need to have outside help. You would have to have a full time job, but you would need to have some sort of supplemental income. The idea that right. like, your mm -hmm. income alone could support you was like not viable. And I think that especially is part of this like reckoning, like people, they don't want they don't want that now. Why would they? Why would I yeah. stand for that? Yeah. And I st and I think that that mentality hasn't quite reached um, a lot of theaters because I honestly don't think that retention, all these theaters have retention issues and staffing mm -hmm. issues, particularly at the low and mid level. And I think that a lot of them sort of write it off as it's just like, oh, it's just turnover. It's early career people, et cetera. And I'm like, I think what it actually is, is that you have to pay people a living wage and you have to respect their lives in and outside of work. And you have to give them opportunities to grow in that job. Like, and to grow and like yeah. you, and to have sort of like upward mobility with give within an institution. And they also just need managers who are invested in their personal success. And one of exactly. the huge problems of regional theater is that you have all of these people who are supervisors, but do not receive any sort of management. We talk about this. This was so much of our first yeah. ever episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just it's to very, bring it yeah. back and to contextualize this a little bit is this is not an issue that is in any way specific to theater. Like this no. is an issue. No. This isn't even specific to nonprofits. There's a podcast I started listening to. It is part of Crooked Media, but it's called Work Appropriate. My girl, Anne Helen. Anne Helen Peterson. <laughs> yes. And there has yes. been, she, she did an entire episode about the problem of people being promoted into managerial positions because they're good at their job and not because they're good managers yeah. and then mm -hmm. receiving no managerial training. Mm -hmm. And it just sets everybody up for failure, including the organization itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so, it's so, it's so funny because I think one of the inherent tensions of in theater is that you want to resist a lot of those corporate structures, et cetera, but like some of them are actually useful and could be modified yes. to help create a healthier work environment. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, like actually having code of conducts, actually having external HR practices is really helpful, but a lot of it is also just like internal in that there's no management training, but then there's no real communication loop or feedback or accountability to be a good manager because so many theaters yeah. have like really messed up performance review systems or they don't do 360 reviews none of them are 360 things. oh my god and then, yeah. i mean this i feel like i'm actually like getting into sort of yeah like, what are the things that i want to change because i think a lot of it has to do with a lot of this 
communication loop between like staff, board, and executive leadership. So we're going to take a little bit of a break so that we can step away and regroup for our conversation about pivoting and what we would change. Yeah, what we what we want to see happen. What's our wish list for the industry? I love that. So it's time for intermission. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, everyone. So just a reminder that we have a Patreon that you can join. The tiers begin at $5 a month. And with all of these tiers, you will unlock bonus content, whether that is bloopers or cut content from episodes that didn't make it to the main feed and or monthly bonus episodes where me and Alex either give a quarterly theater recap or of things we've seen or just, I don't know. We'll see how that develops. Silly things, fun things, bonus things. Danielle will maybe give a little recap about her upcoming trip to Edinburgh. Who knows? Oh yeah, that might also be a main feed episode. (laughs) We'll see. So yeah, check us out at patreon.com slash partialviewpod. As always, thank you to our patron Sharon for kicking it off for us. And again, that is patreon.com slash partialviewpod where you can check out all of our different tiers and what you can get out of supporting us. Yep. Back to the episode. All right. So do we want to do like round robin? Yeah. Lauren, as the guest, I do think that you should go first. Let's talk about how we want to see the American theater pivot since we're at this juncture. Yeah. So when you when you gave me this prompt, I, of course, like I came up with like four different areas and then like a lot of just like small actionable <laughs> things under uh, per the way that my brain works and my and my soul wants to work. Um, so sort of like the first big topic that I was thinking about, and I just grouped all of these all under one because they feel interconnected is salary boards and term limits. I really think that leadership term limits for executive leadership need to be about 10 years, not similar. You're seeing right now, especially in UK theaters, like basically all of the artistic directors are stepping down after a decade. And I think that's a good model. And along with that, I think that that should work in tandem with like development and mentorship opportunities for marginalized theater workers to then take over those leadership roles. So that like, instead of tokenizing people and setting them, you can set them up for success instead of treating them like saviors destined to fail. I also think on the subject of executive term limits, that also falls in line with executive pay. I think that we need to start capping executive pay for artistic directors, executive directors, basically anybody who has an at-will contract with the board or who who has a contract with the board rather than at-will employment that I don't, you know, and I mean, this rate can vary depending on the theater, but you should not have a situation where the artistic director is making seven times more than the highest paid full-time salaried employee. Or more than that. that. Or Mm -hmm. 10 times more. Or there's a lot of egregious gaps, but I think that we should be somewhere between like three, like, you know, like, and again, that's going to vary depending on the theater size. But I really do think that like administrative salaries have become disproportionate. And the savings from that, I think that you could use in a lot in a lot of different ways. I also think that like, in terms of the Again, this goes into sort of like a little bit more about like salary, but also I think hiring practices under all under this umbrella is like, you know, eliminating educational requirements, specific Mm. 
clear salary ranges, building relationships with you with universities, but also encouraging your staff and your administrative staff with their artistic practices. You know, um, I think that a lot of people, a lot of artists take jobs in theaters, administrative jobs in theaters to pay their bills. And like, you know, if they want to go dramaturg a show someplace else, or if they want to like be an, I, I don't know, when I worked at Studio Theater, our digital marketing associate was a dancer <laughs> um, and our box office manager was an actor. And, you know, it made for a more like dynamic workplace to have artists from other disciplines working, <laughs> like like working with you. An organization yeah. should support that. Like, and it helps employees feel like valued and it also just helps contribute to like creating like a local arts ecology and then the mm -hmm. last sort of thing on this sort of like subject of all these things is talking about boards in general just like having more thoughtful recruitment and in, in inclusive membership for boards particularly i think starting to prioritize like board members with lived experience and relationship building rather than how much money they can bring like how invested are they in, like finding people who are invested in the theater and invested in the community and if you're really going to go the extra mile like there should be artists as board members and not just like some sort of like satellite artist council committee like like advisory no, board none of that BS. like yeah. actual full-time decision board makers members with hmm. like yeah. oversight over the financials of the theater. And I also mm -hmm. think that all board members should have term limits as well. Yeah. Mm. yeah you yeah, can yeah. accomplish a lot in, in 10 years. Well, I think it's interesting. A lot of boards, like I guess because board governance is totally like mm -hmm. individual. Mm -hmm. um, there are like the nonprofit I currently work at, which isn't in theater, but it is like arts industry adjacent. We not only have, like our board does not have a give get mm -hmm. minimum for board mm -hmm. members. So, which sort of helps alleviate the pressure to recruit board members exclusively for their wealth. For sure. And it also has, it's three year terms and there's a two term mm -hmm. limit. So it, yeah, there's a lot of places that I think are doing that, but it would be amazing if it could be just sort of like universalized somehow or just more and common. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. but when you have a board that cares about theater and not just about like having a certain like cultural clout that is very represented in in like the relationships with the staff when i worked you know when i worked at the alley theater which is a very large institution i did not have individual relationships with the board members i never did either yeah. when i worked at studio theater where the board was very service oriented and they were all theater goers and all really like passionate about the art form i had relationships with dozen with like a dozen of them point where they would be like I'm going to London can you please help curate my like what plays I should see or they always wanted to talk about what they saw in New York or they always wanted to engage with with the work that we were doing which I had never experienced before but it made me feel more invested in the organization to know that the people who are responsible for like stewarding the financial health of it were invested in me and also invested in the art on stage yeah. and I think that that can be taken to like you know even higher levels but yeah but those are sort of like my like 10 ideas under under that like umbrella of them okay so here this is something i'm really interested in because i'm a library nerd and libraries have really embraced this idea and diversified their offerings through this idea over the last decade but i think that if a theater has a physical space they really need to embrace the idea of being a third space for the community and what I mean by third space for people who might not know is that there's this idea that you go to work and you go home. 
And the other places were... school and home. Or school and home. And the other places you kind of hang out and have social interactions and community are called third spaces. Most theaters don't really fall under that umbrella. It's a place where you go to for like one singular function and you go and then you kind of just like leave. Some theaters do have, you know, bars you can go to afterwards or concessions will stay open. Especially in Mm. London. But a lot don't. A lot don't have that capability at all. A lot of physical theaters don't have a lot of seating Mm. for people to just come and hang out during the day. They don't have a cafe that's open during the day. They don't, a lot of theaters don't really, I hate to say it, but they don't engage with the community in ways that like can be mutually beneficial and can bring people to the theatrical space and introduce theater to people who maybe haven't experienced it before. I really think that if theaters were to broaden their perceptions of what their space could be used for, there would be a greater sense of accessibility, less of like, we're in an ivory tower and theater is only for certain people. There was a great article, and I forget what journal it was in, but it was in an academic journal like a, like years ago, about how the public theater a while ago, 10, 15, I don't know, I've lost all sense of time. They redid their space and they redid their lobby. Don't get me started on that lobby. And it was a really good opportunity to maybe make it more inviting for people. And it's not at all. They there's, didn't. Ba- there's barely any seating. There's like a kiosk in the middle where they sell coffee and stuff, I think, during the shows. I don't know. I haven't been there in a while. And then there's a box office. There's the only like public seating area is yes. up on sort of like a mezzanine level. And the stairs to access mm-hmm. it are behind closed yeah. doors. It's that are unlocked that you can use, but the like it's impl- like it very much seems like you can't. Like it's a secret. And the article was kind of just about like the irony between being the public theater, but not really being a public space. We don't need to cut this. This is the one place I personally am very okay with name checking on this podcast is the public <laughs> and Oscar Eustace. <laughs> Valid. Yeah, I I really think that theaters need to be, if they have physical spaces, think about what else can we do with this space to get bodies in, to get people interested in. I think that that would, that's a, that's a huge pivot for a lot of op- organizations going forward. So that's my number one. All right, Danielle, what's yours? My first thing is creating or identifying or just sort of problem solving around unionizing arts administrators and other uh, disciplines in theater that are not unionized or not part of an existing union. This is just a huge issue and it aligns with the growing labor movement nationally that we've talked about on this podcast before that we talked about earlier this episode and particularly for like just speaking as a dramaturg in particular we have a sort of membership association, but it's not a labor union. There's no collective bargaining um, of any kind. They have developed some pretty useful tools for helping you like determine and negotiate rates for various um, freelance employment scenarios. But, you know, it's still ultimately up to the employer to agree to those rates and terms. Um, And it's up to the individual to 
be a strong enough negotiator and like honestly sort of like brave enough to ask for that in the first place. So yeah, and I think there's also a ton of disciplines that aren't unionized, including playwrights. That's a huge thing. And this is, um, I'll fold this under. I have this as a separate item, but I'll fold this under because this is something I mentioned in our previous episode, recapping our time at Broadway Con. Mm -hmm. And it was referenced as well. It initially came up in our conversation about unions and about the WGA strike uh, with Victoria Pollack and CQ that playwrights are not paid for their time in rehearsal. CQ mentioned they're working with the playwright Winter Miller and the Dramatist Guild to talk about ways to get playwrights compensated for their time in rehearsal because that is essentially like a month of free labor where they're sitting in rehearsal all day and then they go home and they do rewrites and they churn out new pages. That's active work that they're not being compensated for. And like, again, that's another thing that could theoretically be solved or at least helped if there was more unionization power in the industry. Okay, my next one. Yes. (laughs) Yes, go, go, go. I would love to see a pivot towards like expanding this idea of local resource sharing. We talked a little bit about the top of our conversation about how there's been a real rise of co-productions between local theaters over the last few years. And I would love to see how this can extend to other resources. Like how can you pool production resources? Like do you share shops? Do you share equipment? Do you share inventory? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. It's very smart. That is happening. It's mentioned in some of the articles that we'll link to in the show notes. How can organizations band together to like split administrative mm-hmm. burdens, especially with like shared HR services? I I can't quite remember. I was trying to like look up this article beforehand, but I do believe there's like a coalition of Pittsburgh theaters who have all like joined together um, as part of like, I don't totally remember why, but it was just like, hey, we are all like individually, we could not afford this certain one thing on our own. So we're doing it all together. And I also think in terms of this local resource sharing, just really having like a, I don't want to say it's like a reckoning, but maybe like a realigning of values into how theaters can support local playwrights because there are Mm -hmm. so many ways to support writers beyond production um, because theaters do have limited production slots. I do think that every theater should commit to filling at least one slot with a local living playwright. (laughs) Um, And I think that there are also ways that like you could also band together to sort of like have like a citywide Mm -hmm. commitment and make a festival, make an event out of it. You know, like that always, that sort of branding, I think, can be very, very useful. But I also think just really asking, like, how can using the resources that we have, because I'm also very sensitive to like staff capacity, how can we, like you were saying, Alex, like, how can we help create a space that actually feels like it serves the need of the needs of its community? And when it comes to playwrights like what is that is that like free rehearsal space is it writing space is it like you know like having a conversation with a literary manager to be like hey maybe my work isn't right for you but can you recommend like other theaters that I should be working with like developing relationships that way is it you know access to printers (laughs) like you know like what are like the physical resources that you can like build like a meaningful mutually beneficial relationship with a playwright that is not going to like 
completely exhaust and already like overworked skeletons crew staff and will also be useful to the writer, even if it's not like here, we're going to give you a production. So yeah, I think sort of like reassessing like exactly what does it, who is the community that you are serving and what is your space in the sort of like local theater ecosystem of wherever of wherever you are and how can you help make it the, make that more specific and yeah. more intentional to like to that was actually totally going to be my next one well, that's okay because you I literally had a third space like my great. fourth one was about third spaces great, so I can't great, great. talk about that I was going <laughs> to say more co-pros and cooperation across the board and I also want to shout out that our second episode with Kate Moore Haney touched on like a lot of these topics so much especially like with her talking about the artistic caucus and which Lauren then wrote about yeah I mean, I have been in rooms with Kate Morhaney for two years. She's a genius. So, so she's great. great. I worked with her at NOR for a few years. She's amazing. We'll link to Lauren's piece in the show notes. <laughs> and our episode with, with Kate. So my second one is going to be something that it's something that people talk about. And I feel like people don't know the ins and outs. And I'm here to be like, I kind of know the ins and outs. Think outside of the subscription model of tickets, which is the basic idea that you buy a bunch of tickets to shows in a season and then you go and you sit in the same seats most of the time and you're supporting the theater that way. There's a lot of jokes that subscribers are dying and so subscriptions are dying. That is not all of it. The fact of the matter is a lot of people can't put out money for a full subscription every year to everything they want to see. So they jump around to different theaters. So like that, that is an issue that theaters can are having trouble cracking in and of itself. I had the idea today, like what if we had like kind of an inter-theater subscription model? I mean, I already worked at a regional theater where we were in a consortium on Tessitura already. So like how how like what if what if we could all pool again like local cooperation you're already all in tessitura together you're already all in tessitura pool the ticketing for those that don't know tessitura is one of the like major ticketing platforms for cultural organizations donor constituent yes. database software it does theaters. marketing it does development it does ticketing so a lot of cultural organizations like to uh use it and what if I want to go see one play at one theater, two at another, one at another, but I don't want to pay $75 for all of them? Like, what if I could just do a subscription and get a little bit of a discount, make it more affordable? The thing about subscriptions is you have to put out all the money at once, or not at once, but ahead of your first show, most likely. So that's just like... And yes, all at once, in one in mm. one payment most of the time. Oh, some... um A lot of places offer payment plans now, but... Some... Well, yeah. I it was depends. Say, like, some have definitely adapted to that need, yeah. which is great, and I want to see more of it. But a lot of people don't want to commit to shows, especially post-COVID. A lot more people are doing things spur of the moment. I still work, work in ticketing, just not for theater, and we see this all the time. People are just buying day of, day before, more than they were buying, you know, a week out pre-covid and i just think subscriptions also don't work for the for the generation that's coming up to support and be in theater um younger people in my experience don't care as much about seats as they do about cost and quality of the shows I, i'm not making like a, i don't want to make a blanket statement on that there are definitely some people who really do care but like i don't know i think it's i think it's not working 
for the audience that theaters are trying to get and they're trying to crack the nut to get. I think that flex passes and like flex ticketing where you kind of like put out money and then you can like ascribe to the show later that you want to see. It's kind of the devil in ticketing. Like a lot of theaters don't want to touch this idea, but I'm pretty sure it's it's very similar to what like Woolly Mammoth has been doing for a few years now. And I mean, I don't know the data behind it, but like they haven't gotten rid of it. I assume it's working on some level. It's probably not the best for forecasting sales, but I don't know. I think we're at a point where theaters need to be listening to the audience about how they want to start their experience at the theater, which starts with marketing and ticketing. Can I also just say like theaters can't listen to their audiences unless they bother to ask. And a lot of them aren't. Yeah, that. Yep. Agreed. So, yeah, I think we need to be brainstorming how to escape the subscription model being kind of the basis for this is going to get us through the season. And we can talk more about that. I know there's yeah. like it's a very multifaceted issue that I have a lot of feelings about. Yes. My next one is similar and sort of like bounces off of what both of you just said, which is about exploring new production models overall. We've already talked about co-productions, but it goes beyond that. Different production models of like not just for an individual show, but for how an organization is structured to produce. Like, for example, 5059 Theaters in New York City is a nonprofit, but not specifically a 501c3 and sort of lives in this middle ground between being a presenting organization and a producing organization where everybody who like they offer sort of subsidized discounted rental rates marketing support tick box office support front of house staff to the nonprofit producing companies that they curate that the artistic director curates to fill their spaces So it isn't just like a free for all rental situation where anyone can just like write a check and be there. There is curation. There is consideration of audience. There are members. There are subscribers. But uh, it's like it's a very interesting sort of hybrid model that I think more places could explore. It certainly wouldn't work everywhere for everyone, but it exists. Uh, And another one is like like we're talking about term limits for executive leadership at theaters what about just like term limits for a theater like companies like 13p that are created like with a fixed end point in mind for those that don't know 13p was a collective of 13 playwrights a number of years ago that banded together to each produce one play of like every one of the 13 of them had one play produced by 13P collectively, and then the group dissolved. And I think there's been too much emphasis, too much, I guess, like capitalistic emphasis on longevity and growth, just like endless growth that, you know, speaking of, you know, boards actually being focused on the mission of the organization the way that the staff is expected to be like sacrificing all of these things for the sake of the mission, this emphasis on building bigger, nicer spaces and all of these things is causes mission drift. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a distraction a lot of the time 
And I'm not saying those having those spaces is a bad thing by any means. But like one of the articles I was reading was just saying like it shifts people's mindsets away from like the creation of art and into just like the management of assets. Mm. Yeah. So we have about like 45 minutes left. Do we have anything burning that we also want to talk that you guys want to shout out? Yeah, I think that I this is just like this was my last point. Yeah, but, sure. um, mm-hmm. I would like to see just because I do think that there have been some successful sort of pilot models of this that emerged during the pandemic, but like more artists on staff. Um, I think mm-hmm. that Soho Reps Project One initiative, which started off as a job creation program during the pandemic, but now like actually has like three artists and residents where they're on staff for a year, they get health insurance, they develop work and the theater produces it, has actually yielded like actual like tangible results for that theater. You guys previously mentioned that I was part of this artistic caucus pilot program, this two-year project, which um, for the first year employed four artists um, and paid them, I think, about $1,500 a month to act as a resource and a sounding board to the organizations and, and did their best to like integrate them into these organizations, even virtually during COVID. And the second year of the project, which I'm going to be writing about, actually had it actually created like a think tank. I'm really excited to sort of write about and yield the results of and yield like they'll find the learnings from that because it was four artists applied um, and the theaters had a think tank and they met once a month to sort of like address sometimes like very specific like actionable questions or sometimes just like sort of like bigger macro level things about the industry um, and creating a space for that and like ways in which that was useful for the organizations but also ways in which that was a way to directly support artists. I, and I think that that can be achieved, especially when you start rethinking about how you redistribute some of these, if you end up like reducing executive compensation, like where can you take that money and invest it back in the theater? And it is in putting artists on staff. I think that also extends also to like how theaters think about commissioning. Something that I think that theaters are doing, I'm starting to hear about more organizations do that I just sort of want to uplift as an idea is like, issuing commissions not just to playwrights but to like generative artists in general mm-hmm. something that we that um we did when i was at studio theater was we actually gave directors commissions um and it was essentially like the equivalent of what their director's fee would be for doing a show but instead it was like why don't you take a month and do some like deep reading and critical thinking so because you're not like freelance directors are always hustling from one job to the yep. next um they're always in rehearsal for their next thing so why don't we pay you for whatever you would make for a month and you take that time to like do some deep thinking and reading and like really like have space to like Mm. do that work and think of like four or five things that you really want to work on and that you would maybe really want to work on with us and like pitch us some ideas um you know whether that's like a a revival like something from the canon that you want that you have like a really original idea on or like a project you want to work on with with a specific playwright just like thinking about like how we commission work as like a more like generative process rather than just like here is like a physical document that somebody's written and I am paying you for three drafts and then we'll do that but also like how can we help support like people's creative process um and how can an organization give time for that thinking and dreaming and not just like here is a concrete workshop here like here's a production because while that is important too like like we've been talking previously like playwrights don't get paid for rehearsal they don't get paid for that time so how can we how can theaters start compensating and giving space for all the various sometimes like less tangible 
aspects of yeah. of a person's creative process. Yeah, it's like personal development. Again, like so one of my other points that I don't want to get into too much because we've kind of already talked about it is like treating your company like a business, like having those business practices of investing in your employees. That is so similar to something like having me go to a like sales development workshop for mm-hmm. a little bit, like paying for me to really get and like develop my skills that'll help me with my job. Mm-hmm. It's just about like reframing. Yeah, that reminds me of something I was going to mention earlier when we were talking about like theaters sort of rejecting these sort of like corporate ideas mm-hmm. or things that they view as like too corporate is that like not only is Alex like you mentioning sort of professional development stipends like that's one of the things that I think a lot of theaters are like well that's for corporations that have Mm -hmm. bigger budgets but there are so many ways that theater companies particularly the larger institutions are like absolutely operating in a corporate way and just like pretending that they're not and like lying about it lying to themselves and Mm -hmm. just like really leaning on the toxic where the staff is a family. <laughs> I mean, I have written extensively about my thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know. Which is to say, not that can fam- like our family's never toxic. Tell me more mm-hmm. because I... <laughs> no, I, yeah. I think that it's like, you know, the language of like your workplace has your family is something that, I mean, again, it's not unique to theater, but it's something that is really used as like, a, is like language of exploitation particularly when it comes to building, when it comes to the way that theater industry relies on the youthful enthusiasm of young theater workers. And it's like, instead of making you think like when you're here, your family, that's sort of like gross olive garden, (laughs) you know, know, nature of like creating a theater. It's just like, you should pay people well, you should respect their time in and outside of work. You should have actual boundaries. Like that is Mm -hmm. what, that's what's healthy. It is this, I feel like theater traffics in these very like hazy boundaries between like the personal and the professional Um, and creating, you know, more like professional standards is healthy and good and should be encouraged. Um, And it keeps everybody safe too. Um, You know, especially like when everybody went through, when all these theaters went through their reckonings and creating like code of conduct and harassment policies and et cetera, like this is a way to like using language like that almost like invalidates all of those efforts, all of those efforts. Like you should not expect your workplace to treat you like a family. And this isn't something that really crystallized for me until I got a job not in theater and I realized it's just like oh there really is value in having something that doesn't trade on the fact that my identity is complete and my self-worth is completely composed by my profession and the ways in which like theater can manipulate that can manipulate that and traffic in that and that there is a lot of value in having a job that you know like has set hours and has set responsibilities and you know I for me especially I was just like oh I don't have to think about work on nights and weekends um and granted like that's not possible in theater because it is a nocturnal business but there are ways to enact boundaries and to encourage your workers to have a personal life yeah also I I already have a family like I don't, I don't need another. I don't need another. I don't need more ego, more disputes, mm-hmm. <laughs> more politics. <laughs> I, I, like I'm good. I'm totally good. 
can we talk can we i want to like circle back to yes. what you were talking about about um reimagining the potential of theater spaces because that's yeah, let's that really dive into like reacting to like what we were all chatting about yeah that's an idea that really mm-hmm. resonates for me and i actually um i don't know if you're familiar with them theater yep. horizon in philadelphia they actually have something called the third space initiative right now where they're really thinking about how they mm-hmm. can create a cultural space that is like that like creates that sort of like sense of like civic engagement and like their sense of connection similar to like you know libraries and churches and cafes etc but the other thing that I've also been thinking about and again like I just feel like I just keep this entire podcast has just like turned into a love fest for me talking about the people I worked with in the artistic caucus and I'm just going to shout out Annalisa Tias again who's a genius so I don't mind like talking about how brilliant she is but um one of the things that she really piloted is this shared space initiative at Baltimore Center Stage which like what they're doing is they're opening up their building to artists and neighbors and and their neighbors and like various community organizations to like use their space for like events or meetings or rehearsals and then they're also able to like consult with staff members and like receive like marketing and producing support from the staff so building these like meaningful relationships where organizations and they're not all necessarily arts organizations so like building these organizations with like like letting these organizations and people who patronize those organizations into a building in which they've maybe never felt welcome before, but coming for something else. And then just like, that's how you create a community space. You know, it's just like actually creating Mm -hmm. a welcoming environment and serving the needs of your community and meeting people where they're at and actually think like, what does my neighborhood need? Which is exactly why I was mentioning libraries, because this is just like a fun little tidbit for people who may not know. But over the last like 10 years or so, libraries have like a lot of library systems have significantly increased their offerings of what you can take out. It's not just books and media anymore. It's like lawnmowers and gardening tools. Also, libraries are like when where they're one of the few public spaces we have yes. left where you don't exactly. have to be a paid consumer. Exactly. Um, exactly. And I, but I also think, you know, that comes also with complications in the ways that like public librarians have also essentially become social yeah. workers. Theaters, raise, they raise a lot of money talking about how their renovations will serve the community and there's and serve yes. the neighborhood. But there aren't really like actionable plans for that, nor is there really an identification of like, who that community or neighborhood is. And so they end up getting a lot of local funding to do this without mm-hmm. sort of like right. an actual accountability metric. Like, yeah. how does that even happen? It all ends up sort of being this like vague grant speak that then doesn't really serve anybody except the people who are buying right. and, tickets In my already. experience, a lot of what I've seen with that yeah. is that it's sort of a reliance on the just sort of like unspoken understanding, maybe to some degree that, you know, having a bigger, having a theater at all in this area or renovating and having a nicer bigger space in the Mm. area will simply fuel gentrification and create more like restaurants nearby and like other other things that one might do before attending a show i think the other thing when we talk about all these issues about like community space is that like and again this is something that came up a lot in sort of my 
writing about the artistic caucus is that like ideas are great, but like you need a consistent staff to be running this and you need staff that is well compensated and you need a staff that is well supported. And particularly when you're dealing with these partnerships with community organizations is that you need continuity. If you are cycling through employees because you aren't paying them enough, that's going to affect like the ways in which you are allowed to build relationships with various organizations if those partners can't even keep track of who's in the position. So that also, like, again, like how all of these like yeah. issues are, are interconnected. The issue of staff retention is super important to like developing and maintaining these mutually beneficial relationships, not just with like your external constituents and your partner organizations, but also with your artists. Like every organization just has to define that for themselves. Like, and like, who is your community? Who are the people you want to serve? How can you do that with the resources that you have available to you? And I think, and particularly yeah. with the staff resources that you have available to you. And that yeah. also just requires like a shifting of priorities. I mean, I think that, you know, I say all the time that like budgets are a moral document, but I also Mm -hmm. think that the way that theaters have chosen to restructure and restaff and where you see, like, do you have 10 people in your development department and one person doing all of your artistic and creative, you know? And it's like, I understand that like fundraising will always take priority, but like when you're not investing in like the actual like artistic and community output, like that's sort of like a, like real values and mission check. Nor are they compensating Mm -hmm. those entry level, so-called entry level. Does entry level exist? No. Um, but they're not compensating those development staff either. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about what you were saying, Lauren, about having artists as board members. Yeah. Like if the idea would be a diverse array of like early career, mid career. Like I'm trying to think about like how this yeah. would be put in motion sort of. I think that. I know we said that we're not here to solve things, but like. No, not at all. But I think that, you know, in many ways, it's a way to like keep an ongoing relationship with artists you've already worked with, because your hope would be that they are already invested in the mission of the theater. And I also think particularly for boards, having somebody who's been through the the production process at that organization or a development process or any kind is like incredibly helpful when it comes to talking about how, how to allocate resources particularly at that organization because everybody's production process is like idiosyncratic in its own way. And I think that also just like builds an investment for those artists that like, you know, it's not just like, hey, we produced your play or hey, we hired you for this one thing because I don't think that it should just be playwrights. I would also want to see designers. I would also want to see um, directors, you know, like any like variety of people who have some sort of contribution, Mm -hmm. like ongoing contribution to make to the life of the theater. You know, because you want them to be invested in the mission, but you also want them to be invested and actually have experience in the work on stage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the same way that a lot of development departments will try to find those sort of like behind the scenes sneak peek vibe opportunities for donors of a certain level, because they know people like their donors and the people who are most monetarily invested in their organization they want to be able to see that in action and i think also having artists on the board provides that same added level of engagement to your board members Mm -hmm. like to your non-artist board members to be able to have that 
deeper engagement with like the tangible realities of the work and not just what the theater's leadership is choosing mm-hmm. to show. Oh, yes. Exactly. Like, I'm looking, like, because recently, you know, I think um, the first, the- I know that several theaters have been doing this, but the first theater that came to mind that, like, recently made an, like, announcement that they were adding artists to their board was Playwrights Horizons. Mm-hmm. Um, and they added Larissa Fasthorse, who they produced uh, Thanksgiving play, and then Robert O'Hara, who's directed multiple plays there. And had some of the plays he's written exactly. done there as well. Um, so, you know, artists that have, like, an existing relationship, I think, is, and, like, have done multiple productions. Yeah. is like, really like, a valuable way when it comes to sort of, like, thinking about, oh, who would be a good match for this Yeah, mm-hmm. I love the idea of having more artists who have been in the trenches on the board. I think that that's, like, the first step, right? Be- that's the first step. The next step is making sure they feel supported enough to be, you know, speaking up and... Mm-hmm. And talking about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And that, again, it's not just for show. I think that's something right. our industry just struggles with in general. It's just like, we do the first step, and then we think it's solved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, um, this is a very interesting, like, way of flipping something that on its head that I was already thinking about, but, like, in a different way. Which was, one of the things on my initial list was just talking about board diversity in general, but I was thinking of it more from like, I wasn't thinking specifically about artists who have a relationship with the theater joining the board. I was thinking more broadly about racial, economic, Mm -hmm. um, social diversity. And um, in the sense that, like for the same core reason really is for, so that, there's somebody on the board or there's some number of people on the board who have more of a connection and more of an understanding of what their marketing associate is doing. Yeah. As opposed to, again, like just sort of what gets reported up by leadership. Exactly. And And like knowing also where the money is going. Right, right. Well, and also the question of, I think that also leads into this larger systemic issue of funding in general Mm -hmm. and like specifically like what foundations are willing to fund yes yes i think that we're in this moment right now where it's like and i think this has been true for a long time that corporations and foundations are really interested in funding new initiatives and new programs etc but nobody wants to fund gen op Mm mm-hmm Education's the sexiest thing that you can give money but it's to also, in the arts world. It's really important. A hundred percent. But like, you're so right, Lauren. And it's like, the, there's also cons beyond mm-hmm. the fact that gen ops is where these companies really need the money mm-hmm. most. Is and that I especially now? Right. A hundred percent. Is that like another con to this of of foundations really only wanting to fund new programs? Is that then? that granting period ends, the funding isn't renewed, the theater isn't able to find a new source of funding for this program that they just like ceremoniously launched into the world mm-hmm. with this grant mm-hmm. and they have to end the program. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like, yeah. it, there's nothing sustainable about yeah. it. It's just, I don't want to call it a waste because I don't think it's all a waste, but it's a heavy miss opportunity and misuse of valuable time and money yeah i I just i really wish that there could be 
not that we, I, and I would never want to like discourage innovation, but I think particularly when we're still in this recovery period that it's like, can't you just give theaters the money they need in order to like keep the lights yeah. on and produce plays? Um, you know, like don't, don't make them try to like work outside of like what their capacity is right now when everybody is operating with a skeleton crew. And also at the very least, just like trying to put together what a viable season looks like to them. Like they shouldn't be asked, they don't want to be jumping through hoops to get, you know, grants for creating a new project when they have a staff that is too exhausted just doing the regular. Yes. And like to have to jump through all of the mental gymnastics of trying to write about whatever production you were already planning on doing to like shoehorn it into grant eligibility requirements. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I Mm -hmm. wish that there was just a little bit more flexibility and understanding for like where people are at, right? Where, where organizations. Where we, where we need the money. And that's why maybe, Honestly, I'm thinking about the all the pieces that we mentioned earlier that have been published recently. It's almost like if those pieces are meant to be amplifying the issue for people who are outside of the industry, mm-hmm. maybe we need to go a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, may, like maybe we need to stop scratching the surface, which is what I feel like is like, I think it's really good that we've been having all these like different opinions emerging, but maybe we just need to go a little bit deeper. And, you know, I hope that there's follow-ups. You know? Yeah, and I mean, this is my um, soapbox about theater journalism in the episode. I one day will figure out how to crack for this podcast. But <laughs> is like I, I feel I feel like I can pretty confidently predict there won't be follow up stories. I know that's they're, what's that's that what's frustrating. They're like they've they've done the reporting, wiped their hands of it by simply regurgitating the information that like this theater and this theater and this theater is closing and this theater has paused its season and this theater has a fundraising camp, a desperate fundraising campaign to save it. And like, here's an overview that barely scratches the surface of like how we got here. Mm -hmm. And then how do we solve it? How do we get out of this? Some people say federal funding shrug and like that's (laughs) the end of it. Yeah. I mean, I do think I think that a lot of the messaging around arts and culture as a viable and very valuable national economy was really solidified during the pandemic, like in a way that I have not seen it before, um, particularly around like the Be an Arts Hero campaign, which I thought Mm -hmm. was like very well organized in terms of talking points. But, you know, I mean, I think that like that needs to continue. It's like, are we going to get a federal theater project next year? Go ahead and say no. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be talking about how we need one because all of these things, like the financial, like when you're talking about the subscription model, when we're talking about all of these things about theater that do not work, they do not work because of, you know, the cost issue. It's like theater is never going to generate enough money in ticket sales to cover all of its expenses. So it's going to rely on some degree of contributed or donated funding. So the yeah. idea is like, what are the other revenue sources that can help mm-hmm. replace that? And yeah. I do, and you know, I do think that like there is like, you know, the regional theater movement was born in part from, you know, what, a, from like a post theater, federal theater project world. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, when you yeah, absolutely. It, it took decades for it to break. <laughs> so I don't yeah. think it's something that we're going to solve in a year um, or even or even two years. 
which is just sad because of because of how immediate everything seems you know for also for people like myself who feel like you have sort of like limited influence and power i still think that like even when you're looking at like these like massive problems and you're just like it gets so discouraging you almost like want to throw up your hands but i do think that like even on like your own personal level to be like well what can i do how can i use this was something that i always Mm -hmm. did when i was at studio theater because even though i was like middle management etc and I didn't supervise anybody. I knew that because I had been there for a long time that I did have a certain amount of like influence just because of how, just because of that's how institutional memory worked. And also Mm -hmm. because I had access to the artistic director who trusted me. And I saw that, that it's like, even though I may not have a lot of agency here, I do have a lot of soft power. So it's like, how can I use that in a very strategic way that can help others around me who may not have that? And I, yeah. I, it's something that I think about now, even in my freelance work, and especially now that the newsletter has become like more of an influential platform than I think I originally thought was it was just like, well, what can I do? And I was just like, well, I can give Annalisa a platform to talk about to like reframe these very frustrating narratives. Um, I can link to other things that I think are really viable. I can like really sort of like help like promote some of these ideas and thinking and like, you know, and that's like how I do, because I also think you guys know, like as dramaturgs, we sort of have this pathological desire to be useful. Um, And I think that really like fuels a a lot of my own work, but I think also my own thinking when it comes to like, how do we solve like big impossible problems? (laughs) And I think it's also like pathological desire to like, or just a pathological way of viewing the idea of being useful as being synonymous with providing nuance and context. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I also, you know, something that I think is probably the most valuable thing that I learned as a dramaturg was learning to be like, you know what? I don't know, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are definitely like certain like very important issues that are at play here that like I will fully admit that I have like, you know, am I as well versed in anti-capitalism and class consciousness as I should be? No, but I will be, but I will, you know, yeah. um, but that's something, but like identifying like what my own areas of understanding are that I need to brush up on in order to really be an advocate and to really I don't want to say thought leader because that makes me want to vomit, but like, you know, to really be somebody who can like critically think about like what these issues are and like what my own contribution can be towards them to help alleviate some of this like quote unquote crisis. Um, I, you know, which, which is like your, everything you're describing is very much like grassroots. It's kind of like a grassroots campaign-ish feel that's not like top down. Well, when you mentioned be an arts hero, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's making me just think maybe it's not a pivot the industry needs. Maybe we need kind of a restart. And that's what this pandemic pause was supposed to be after all, wasn't it? But then everyone... The rhetoric? Yeah, that's that's what it was kind of like supposed to be. But now everything that we've, we've built upon since then is shaky and we're seeing the cracks. Mm-hmm. It's also funny, Lauren, that you, you just beat me to the term thought leader. I was going to say <laughs> that I feel like there's... And, you know, as cringy or whatever as that as that term might be, like, I do feel like there's sort of a vacuum of like actual thought leadership in the industry. It's like, who is talking about these larger issues in a central way that like people are paying attention to? Because it certainly isn't in arts journalism, Mm -hmm. like maybe in certain 
instances like you can point to like certain pieces in American theater or pieces on HowlRound but like those are those are not I don't know like that's I just don't think it's enough not to embarrass you but I I think nothing for the group is doing a lot of that work well that's yeah that's why I was gonna bring it up and then you were like yeah. do not call me a thought leader I will vomit and then but like yeah, well because I also think that like in the way that I approach things is that I tend to be like a very pragmatic person um just because that's sort of how I am in my whole life having grown up in a house where I was told to like you know hope for the best prepare for the worst <laughs> which is something that has you know yeah uh, rippled out to every aspect of my life but um yeah you know I think that unfortunately like we don't really have a lot of online spaces that provide nuance but I do think that there's a lot of like I'm thinking specifically of Regina Victor at Rescripted. I was going to also say Rescripted is another example. I think that that's such an important platform because it's artist-led and because they are so committed to creating a space where artists can respond to these things. And I, and I also know this because I know just through conversations that there in the coming weeks are going to be a lot more responses in terms of like essays in terms of you know actual like formal responses to a lot of this to a lot of these like think pieces etc by other artists and I think when we are now in this phase of like of this next phase of like okay well we've had the sort of like high level identifying the crisis from sort of mainstream publications and now we're getting more of the sort of like artist-led response some of which is at, some of which is offering like actionable solutions, some of which is talking about like how to reframe the narratives, all of which I think are incredibly valuable to have. Um, and so then I'm curious to like what the next stage is in terms of like actual like execution and implementation of a lot of these ideas that are circulating of like yeah. whose responsibility is it now to like, okay, we have all of these ideas out there whose responsibility is to implement them and who's going to hold them accountable and it's all of us and it's all of us Um, and it's scary like I just want to point out that that's like a scary thought and it's scary and it's it's scary to do and it's hard to do but like I agree with you it's it's on all of us yeah any final thoughts I like the uh ending on it's on all of us it's on all of us (laughs) um which is both like overwhelming but also empowering (laughs) yeah I don't know yeah I think like anything that may seem overwhelming it's trying to say something profound and I'm coming up short so never mind cut that (laughs) is it that it's like when it's when it's when it scares you it's worth doing like kind of vibe yeah you know, I hmm. you can't like you do have to take some risk. And I think that this time is going to require a lot of imagination. Um, and also, like I said previously, it's going to challenge a lot of existing status quos, which is very scary to people in power. But it is, yes. it is a necessity and it is the only way forward. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Did we solve it? I don't know. I, hope I don't not. know. <laughs> oh God, this this is the most fraught that that question has ever been. <laughs> no, I don't Did think we, we solved it. You know, but I think that we we identified some like I think we identified some very like valid and actionable ideas. I hope yeah. so. I hope. I so. think I think this might be the first time that we're not going to answer that with a sarcastic "Yeah, we solved it." <laughs> yeah, and just be like you, straight up no, no, uh, <laughs> no. No, but like fingers crossed. Look, you know what? <laughs> yeah. This is a long game, I think. Yeah. So I think that we just got to be like in it, you know? Yeah. It's not going to happen overnight. 
for sure. Yeah. Well, this has been incredible. Yes. <laughs> this thank has you, been like you. the best time. Thank you so much for coming on, Lauren. Thanks so much. I was so like delighted to be asked, but I'm always down to talk about ideas to talk about ideas with other with other people and I always love talking with other dramaturgs so thank you for having me if people want to find you on the socials where are you and do you have any projects uh coming up that you want to plug or that you can plug um I do oh at I'm coming out of talkback retirement to moderate uh, two conversations as part of theater Washington's DC theater week Mm. One is going to be at the kickoff event. Um, another is going to be at the Smithsonian um, on October, the Smithsonian Arts and Industries Building on October oh, yeah. 3rd. Um, and for both of those, I'll be talking about the upcoming DC theater season with a variety of local artists and critics. Um, so I'm very excited for that. And then I have some other projects that I can't talk about yet, but I'm, I'll be very excited when I can. Amazing. Amazing. And socials and newsletter? Sure. Um, on social, I am on, I'm still sort of on X slash Twitter, but not really, but I'm at Halverson on that. And I just started an Instagram account for nothing for the group because everybody kept trying to like friend my personal one um but <laughs> that one is at nothing for the group on instagram and maybe one day i'll <laughs> do something with it but um, other than that you can find me at my newsletter which is nothingforthegroup.com. thank you amazing so we may not have solved anything this week but that doesn't mean we won't solve something in a later episode so we hope that you'll tune back in uh when we return yeah and we hope that you enjoyed this conversation let us know uh what ideas you want to throw into the mix rate and review and uh subscribe and tell your friends and we hope that you'll stick around for uh this long game as we all try to fix a dying industry (laughs) way to keep it upbeat danielle it's an audio medium but i'm giving a sarcastic thumbs up to the camera (laughs) we will catch you all next time bye 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 in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D L E Y. Till next time. Bye.